Good, good. It's good to see all of you. I hope we have some Calvinists in here. Maybe I knew some don't like to call themselves Calvinists. It has its connotations sometimes. I remember one one conference I was at with Vordi uh, Bakam in Sweden, and at the end we were talking to one visitor at the conference and suddenly it dawned upon him and he said, are you Calvinists? And became very afraid when it turned out that most people at the conference were Calvinists. But, of course, we who call ourselves Calvinists Uh, or have that theology, do we know anything about John Calvin, whom the, the th- it's called after, it's gotten its name after, who was Calvin really? Many people maybe understand the doctrines of grace, The tulip, the five points of Calvinism, supposedly invented by John Calvin in his tower in in the Alps in Switzerland. Some of us can recount those points. Some of us maybe subscribe to a Calvinistic confession of faith, but... Who, who was the man John Calvin? To many it's just a name or a face. We have seen pictures of him, what he looked like with his beard and his uh, angry, stern look. But who, who was the man John Calvin really? This is what we're gonna learn some things about here today. We're going to have a few hours here of pure enjoyment to learn about the man whom we are named after, being a bit tongue-in-cheek here. In uh, reading about Calvin, doing my research for this uh, uh, lecture or sermon or speech, there are many versions of John Calvin who he was. You have one side, either you love him or either you hate him. We have one side, the pure reformed Calvinists who love Calvin and paint a very nice picture of him. And then you can go to our uh, Lutheran here, here in this country or in Sweden that I'm from can go to our Lutheran historical documents and books and read what they wrote about Calvin and it's not of, often not very nice things. They write things like he was feared more than he was loved, one Lutheran dictionary said about Calvin. And if you go to the Swedish Wikipedia page, 
about John Calvin. You can read all, all kinds of strange things about this man. He was a very strict and harsh man who disciplined everyone in his church and things like that. And uh, <clears throat> it's been like that all the time. Even in Calvin's own time, there were people who either hated him or loved him. In fact, he wrote himself, he wrote in his autobiography, in uh, his uh, commentary on the Psalms, he introduces the commentary with a short autobiography on himself, where he writes that some people who are writing about him, certain men have had too great an influence, he writes, and part of the common people who were corrupted by their alluring propaganda. People were writing propaganda about him. They were writing fake news about him. Just as we see today, we have two pictures of what is going on in the world. It's the same, same thing all over, all through history. And especially when you look at the man John Calvin, there are two polar opposite opinions on him. And here we will now learn the truth about John Calvin. The first truth is that he was actually not, his name wasn't John Calvin. His name was not John Calvin. His name was Jean Calvin. And he was born in France. He was a Frenchman. He was born in Noyon in France, in northern France, born 1509, when Martin Luther had already lived 25 years. So he was a bit younger than Martin Luther. He was born into a time where Reformation had started, Reformation was going on, but he himself was born into a Catholic family in France. His uh, mother and father were Catholics. He was a Catholic, born, baptized Catholic. He, as a child or a, at a young age, he started working in the Catholic Church, helping out in the Catholic Church. He started studying philosophy. He was on the road to learning to become a Catholic priest. He began studying, getting an education to be a Catholic priest. But then something happened with his father and the Catholic Church, maybe. Calvin writes himself that his father thought it would be more profitable for him uh, economically to instead uh, go over to start studying law instead. And it's speculated if his father had some kind of... He left the Catholic Church. He actually died and was buried outside the, the graveyard because he wasn't a Catholic when he died. He was 
excommunicated from the Catholic Church. So maybe that's why his father changed his mind on the course of uh, education that John Calvin was going to take. So he went to Orleans or Orléans University to study law instead. And again, this, this didn't mean a secular education. The law, legal studies at that time, the laws were formed after the Bible. There were still Christian states or Christian culture, a Christian society. Where would you get laws from? Today we get laws from the democracy, those who have been majority elected have been given the right by the right by the people the majority people to decide what's right or wrong but still at that time people believed in god and that god's word decides what is right and wrong so calvin studying law didn't mean that he left the church or left his beliefs or that he left the church world or something like that it meant that he went to another field of study he was still a catholic of course but he describes his own uh, discovery of the reformed or reformation protestant truths his conversion to true saving faith as a slow and subtle process. It was during these years as he was studying, he was growing up. He writes in his commentary on the Psalms again that this was a slow progress. He, he says that he was hardened at first to the gospel. There were Protestants at the time, there were Lutherans or people who understood the Protestant uh, doctrines, Reformation doctrines, justification by faith alone at the time, but he was hardened to these truths that the Protestants were preaching. He called them the, the Gospelers, they were called, but he had Protestant friends. He had Protestant relatives, he had access to Luther's books, and also, of course, other writings, and uh, of course, the Bible. So, gradually, he came to understand that the Roman Catholic Church was wrong. It didn't fit with the Bible, it didn't match up with God's Word. And although he describes this conversion as a slow progress, a slow process, he then says that he had a, he then describes a moment of sudden conversion, and he writes this as a sort of a prayer to God. He writes about his conversion experience, being exceedingly alarmed at the misery into which I had fallen. And how much more at that which threatened me in view of eternal death 
I, duty-bound, made it my first business to betake myself to your way, that is God he's speaking to, to your way, condemning my past life, not without groans and tears. And now, O Lord, what remains to a wretch like me, but instead of defense, earnestly to supplicate you not to judge that fearful abandonment of your word according to its deserts from which in your wondrous goodness you have at last delivered me. He describes, in other words, a very strong conviction of sin, his own sin, his own guiltiness before God, his own need of God to deliver him. He has nothing but tears and groans. He can do nothing to save himself. But here, so here he describes this moment, this moment where <clears throat> he once and for all was saved. He took a stand. He broke with the Roman Catholic Church and joined the Protestant Reformation. And he describes after this moment that he was no longer interested in his legal studies. Instead, he started to study the church fathers, the Bible, theology, those things. He felt an earnest seal, a fire, a desire, a fervor to study God's word and stop studying those legal things. And uh, again, he was in France, and it was not exactly the same as in Germany when Martin Luther had his, uh, his mo moments of, you know, here I stand. He stood before the Diet of Worms and was actively questioned by the church and persecuted by the church. In France, it was not exactly like that, yet they could still live undercover, sort of, without any persecution. But then uh, the moment came, a time came when someone, instead of, as, as Luther did when he nailed his 95 Theses to the wall of the church in Wittenberg, someone in France nailed a placard on uh, the door of the, the king, where the king lived in France, the French king. And this was a great outrage, and of course the king became furious, and he, then persecution broke out in France against the Protestants as well. So people had to hide. Calvin went into hiding. Some people left uh, France uh, Calvin couldn't do this just yet, but he went into hiding. But after a while, he, he uh, was able to escape from France. And this was in 1534 when he started living as a refugee, you could say. He left France, he fled from France and went to uh, Basel, in Switzerland, 
And now Switzerland at that time wasn't a centralized state, a centralized government. It was uh, more of a, an area with... Uh, it was a decentralized uh, state or land or country with uh, different uh, cantons, small city-states, small self-governing small states that governed themselves and they did cooperate with each other in different ways, but they were pretty much self-governing. So first Calvin came to Basel and these, uh, yeah, this was one of the Swiss cantons and th these cantons had received their reformation. They had banned Catholicism. They had removed Roman Catholicism as a state religion and received the reformation so the situation here was uh, trying to reform the churches in Switzerland. And John Calvin lived here for a while. It was here that he wrote his first uh, edition in 1536. When he was 27 years old, he wrote his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, the original title is Institutio Christianae Religionis in Latin, which means uh, uh, instruction in the Christian religion or education in the Christian religion. So this was, at that time, it was a, not, a, not as big book as it's now. He came to edit it more later on. But at that time, it was a, sh a shorter book, uh, mostly to explain what the Protestants believed, to, uh, because of the persecution, to clarify there were many uh, misrepresentations of the Protestants, the Reformers at the time. So he wrote this book to show everyone that this is what we believe in, in doctrine and practice and he in this first edition he mostly followed Martin Luther's structure the structure that Martin Luther had in his uh, catechism so it was more of a catechism almost or a practical handbook in Christianity and also of the faith and practice of Christianity and he wrote this book anonymously. He didn't want fame for himself. A recurring theme in his life is that he, he tries to hide away in a corner. He doesn't want attention. He doesn't want to draw any attention to himself. He is fine with writing this book anonymously. But in some way they, it is revealed the identity is revealed that he was the one who wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion. So he became quite known or renowned. He then 
uh, after being in Basel for a while, he went to Italy and stayed there for a while. He then went back to France, to Paris, and also was there for a while. And then he, his uh, final destination, or where he wanted to go, was to go to Strasbourg. Yeah. But he was hindered. He was. Uh, he had. Uh, planned to go to Strasbourg, but he had, because of wars that were going on, the road directly to Strasbourg was closed, so he had to go through Geneva. Geneva in Switzerland. He didn't plan on staying there for long, he was just going through there, he was just gonna rent a hotel room there and stay there overnight and then in the morning continue his journey to Strasbourg. But since he had became famous for his book, The Institutes, someone uh, found out that he had arrived to Geneva and, and told a certain man named William Farrell, or Guillaume Farrell, William Farrell in English, that he was there. Calvin writes about this himself also, his first time in Geneva. As he was going to Geneva, he writes, a short time before I came to Geneva, by the work of the same good man, Farrell, and of Peter Vire, the papacy had been banished from the city. Again, these were Swiss cantons, self-governing. They had banished Roman Catholicism and started receiving reformation. The papacy had been banished from the city, but things were still unsettled and the place was divided into evil and harmful factions. And one man who has since shamefully gone back to the papists took immediate action to make me known, to reveal that Calvin had arrived to Geneva. And then Farrell, who was working with incredible zeal to promote the gospel, bent all his efforts to keep me in the city. And when he realized that I was determined to study in privacy in some obscure place and saw that he gained nothing by entreaty, he descended to cursing and said that God would surely curse my peace if I held back from giving help at a time of such great need. Terrified by his words and conscience, conscious of my own timidity and cowardice, I gave up my journey and attempted to apply whatever gift I had in defense of my faith. Here we see a description how Calvin describes himself as a shy and timid and cowardly person who wants to study in privacy in some obscure place, hidden away from people just himself and his books and his Bible and just continue to write his uh, institutes, his commentaries. 
but he gets nothing like that. Like Jonah, he is trying to escape God's plan for his life. So here in Geneva, he again he plans to just stay overnight in Geneva, but William Farrell comes there and asks Calvin that please could you could you help us here in Geneva? We have such problems. We have banished the Catholic Church. There is a great need here in the church. We need someone like you to help with the reformation, with the doctrine, with the teaching. And Calvin says, no, I want to go on my way to Strasbourg. I want to go there and live in peace and study there. And then as Calvin describes, Farrell resorts to cursing instead. If he can't ask him politely, I will have to curse him instead. May God curse your studies if you try to escape from God's will here in the city in this need. If you're selfish. So Calvin knew how to fear God and to fear this curse. Maybe he felt deep inside that he was being selfish. He he con conceded and stayed there in Geneva to help with the Reformation. And maybe Calvin and William Farrell were not the best combination of people. William Farrell was, is described as an agitator. He did work with fervor, with seal, to work for the gospel, to reform the city of Geneva. He wasn't a careful person like Calvin and Calvin himself maybe wasn't also a very good with people he was shy maybe introverted more into the doctrines more into the studies so maybe here were two people that were not a good combination that's how some people describe it anyways they were not popular their their attempts at reformation were not very popular. Calvin was not very popular here. Calvin describes this as there were evil and wicked factions in the city. It is known that uh, among the many factions, a strong faction in Geneva at the time was the a group called the Libertines. Not libertarians, but libertines. They were people who were uh, had understood the, the Reformation doctrine, but only in part, because this doctrine of the justification of faith in the Reformation discovery that Martin Luther discovered and many others in the Bible, since they, they reasoned that <clears throat> since we are justified by faith alone, it doesn't matter how we live, we can keep on sinning. After all, the more we sin, the more God's grace will be abounding. The more glorified God will be in his grace. So let's sin on. Keep on sinning. We can recognize this from the book of Romans, of course, Romans 3 and 8. 
Paul deals with this exact error as he says, and why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. And also, of course, he refutes the idea, should we sin so that grace may abound even more in Romans 6. But there were this group that had only not read those parts of the book of Romans, so they believed that we should sin on but now Calvin comes here and, and Farrell and they try to in, introduce a, a strict church discipline. They say that we have to, to repent of our sins, to walk in holiness. That's our, since we are Christians, since we are united to Christ, we can no longer keep on living in sin. No, we can't have that. We can't have such harsh people like Calvin and Farrell here. So they, they don't treat uh, Calvin very well. He's not popular. He is, uh, they throw stuff at him as he's walking down the streets and things like that. And uh, Calvin writes about this also. He's only been there for four months. He writes, scarcely four months had passed before we were attacked on the one side by the Anabaptists and on the other side by a certain rascally apostate who, relying upon the secret aid of certain important people, was able to give us much trouble. And meanwhile, internal dissensions coming one upon another caused us dreadful torments. So while there is this picture that Calvin comes into Geneva and he's harsh, he beats people up, he tries to discipline them, he is, uh, you know, mean to everyone. The other side is that there were these libertines, these people who were not saved. They wanted to keep on sinning and, of course, if you want to sin greatly, you... Of course, you can throw things at John Calvin, a man of God, trying to preach the word in Geneva. So they were caused dreadful torments, persecution, I dare say. And uh, Calvin says, furthermore, he describes himself, I confess that I am by nature timid, mild, and cowardly, and yet I was forced from the very beginning to meet these violent storms. Although I did not yield to them, yet since I was not very brave, I was more pleased than was fitting when I was banished and forcibly expelled from the city. So Calvin ended up being banished from Geneva. He was expelled. The libertines took over those who were against him from all the other sides, they decided to expel Calvin. And Calvin couldn't be more happy. He says, Then, loosed from my vocation and free to follow my own desire, I decided to live quietly as a private individual. So Calvin's 
dreams came true at the end through sufferings, through persecutions. And he made his way to Strasbourg. And that was probably the best time of his life. He was separated from uh, William Farrell, uh, maybe not the best role model again. And here in Strasbourg, he's invited to live with uh, another reformer, Martin Buser, Martin Buser, who invites him to live. He invites Calvin to stay at his house, to live at his house. Martin Buser mentors him. He is more as a father to Calvin than William Farrell was. Maybe William Farrell was more like a, a, a partner in crime or a crazy uncle or something. But he here meets a stable father figure who, who mentors him. And Calvin gets to be here, study, write keep on teaching the Bible, keep on continue his writings, his studies. Here he also marries his wife. He finds an, a widow, Idolette de Bure, or Bure, who was a widow of an Anabaptist. And he marries her out of love, that is important to note because Calvin's view on marriage before this was that he didn't really consider marrying. He didn't really think it was necessary for him to, to be married. He thought that maybe, yes, I could get married. I could get a wife if, if it was uh, profitable, if it had some practical if it was helpful practically, if it had, you know, practical implications for practical reasons. But here, now he f finds a woman. She's not even Calvinist. She's an Anabaptist. She is, she, it is not, uh, she has sicknesses. He has to take care of him, her he has to take care of her. She has two sons from before. They have three children together. And he must have fallen in love with her in order to marry her because it was not like he said before that I would, you know, marry for practical reasons or things like that. But it seems that he really fell in love with her and loved her. And then here in Strasbourg, he continues teaching and has a great, a great time. But then he's called back to Geneva after a few years in 1541. He writes again that I have always consistently avoided public notice. But whether I wished it or not, I had to speak before large audiences. And afterwards, the Lord had pity on the city of Geneva and quieted the deadly conflicts there after he had by his wondrous power
frustrated both the criminal conspiracies and the bloody attempts at force, I was compelled against my own will to take again my former position. So Geneva had a new situation. The libertines had been kicked out by and large. And uh, there was sort of uh, chaos. There was a need for someone, a doctrinally sound and stable person to come there to Geneva and help in all the turmoil, in all the chaos, as they are as like a sheep without shepherd, you may say. But still, he, he did not want to go back to Geneva. He wanted to stay in Strasbourg. He had the time of his life. He had, as I said, he had the time to study and do what he wanted in, mostly in privacy. But now he was sensed. He was called to Geneva by people. Calvin says that he so, was so reluctant to go back to Geneva that he says that I would rather die a hundred times than to go back to Geneva where I had to die a thousand times per day. That's how, how bad he felt about going back to Geneva. But the situation was new. They were more open to his reformations. He was sort of vindicated. But he didn't come back in, in triumph or with a triumph, triumphalistic spirit. You know, haha, I told you so. No, he comes back in humility. He doesn't really want to do this. But he wants to follow God's calling. He wants to help the church there. So here he has uh, the opportunity to work there with a new church order. He goes back to Geneva again in 1541 and stays there between 1541 and 1549. And here he starts working on a new church order called Ordonnance Ecclesiastic that he writes in 1541. He writes a church constitution basically about the church authority. How should the leadership in the church be shaped? How should worship look like? He said that the no images would be allowed in worship, no icons, no crucifixes, no organs were to be used in, in, in the worship songs. And he also wrote the Geneva Catechism there. And here he preached every Sunday. He continued. He, it said that he, he just continued from the text that he preached from when, when he first was kicked out of Geneva. He just entered the, back into the pulpit, opened the Bible where he was, and started preaching again. He believed in expository preaching for sure. So that's what he did. He preached every Sunday, and this time he was very popular. 
He was so popular, his sermons were so popular that they invented a shorthand system to quickly be able to write down his sermons, to write, write them down, to save them, and to spread them, transcribe them. And we still have sermons from Calvin today that can be read. So he preached every Sundays. He opened a school or several schools. They sent out about 110 missionaries to France, the so-called Huguenots. They were reformed Calvinist evangelists, missionaries who were trained in Calvin's school in Geneva and sent mostly to France to spread the gospel in France. And he also established public school, sort of public schools for children, not not state tax-funded schools, but schools funded by the church to educate children, to teach them how to read, so they could read the Bible for themselves. And also, during this time, persecution broke out in England to the Protestants in England. So many refugees came there from England, came to Geneva to study under Calvin. And these Englishmen and a certain famous Scotsman called John Knox went there and went back later on to England and Scotland and continued the Reformation there. And that's where the Puritans, that we call the Puritans, came from. They were reformed Calvinists, people taught under Calvin, who came, went back to England and found some errors in the Anglican Church and wanted to purify the Anglican Church. That's why they were called Puritans. And of course, John Knox founded Presbyterianism in Scotland, which is a denomination still to this day. So he had, Calvin had an influence, a great influence, both in the English world and then later on in the United States, or what would become the United States as the the Puritans and the Presbyterians moved overseas, over, moved and brought, and some, some say that Calvin was one great person to, to uh, influence the type of government that they have in, now in the United States, or, or at least had from the beginning in the Constitution. And then Calvin <coughs> yeah, died in 1564 at age 54. He, he wished uh, that they would not have any grave for him. There is no, no one knows where he was buried. He wished that they would have no tombstone for him or a grave for him because he was afraid that the things that have happened to the Catholic saints uh, 
would happen that people would go to his grave to, to, to pray or to get the anointing from his grave or whatever they try to do. But so they don't know where his grave is. There is no place where we can worship Calvin. But that didn't hinder them from erecting a big statue of Calvin in front of the church in Geneva. So please don't worship that statue. That was Calvin's life. And he had a great legacy, as mentioned, both the European continent, we have the Dutch Reformed Church, and the Presbyterian Church in the English-speaking world. But here in the Nordic countries, as mentioned, Calvin and Calvinism has historically been banned, forbidden, the Lutheran Lutheranism has been the state religion and there has been a lot of propaganda against Calvin and Calvinism. But for the most part of the world and not the least, it is said by people that Calvin invented America or was the inventor of America. Lorraine Butner or Boatner has written an essay called Calvinism in History where he says that it is estimated that of the three million Americans at the time of the American Revolution, 900,000 were of Scotch or Scotch-Irish origin, i.e. Presbyterians. 600,000 were Puritan English and 400,000 were German or Dutch reformed. Thus, we see that about two-thirds of the colonial population in America had been trained in the school of Calvin. And he writes on that America was born of Christianity, and that Christianity was Calvinism. The great revolutionary conflict which resulted in the formation of the American nation was carried out mainly by Calvinists, many of whom had been trained in the rigidly Presbyterian college at Princeton. And this nation is their gift to all liberty-loving people. Now we know, of course, that America is changing, unfortunately, but... No matter what they say about the history of America, we can, even we who are Nordics, Scandinavians, can, and Calvinists at the same time, Christians can understand, we can feel an affinity with America in some way. We, We can look at at least how it was supposed to be and understand it in a unique way. Many, many Scandinavians or Nordics don't understand America at all with their guns and with their freedom and <laughs> with, <laughs> you see, you see. There are many 
many myths and misconceptions about Calvin. Some say that Calvin, again, as I researched, read Lutheran literature and, and uh, Wikipedia, you get the picture that Calvin was a cold and a heartless man, just harsh. He just wanted to discipline and, and correct and rebuke people and, and push people out of his church. That's not true. That's not a true picture. Calvin, if you just read Calvin's uh, commentaries or sermons, you find a very warm man. Just read one sentence from Calvin's commentaries and you feel fed on the word. He was very gifted as a teacher and pastor, even if he he didn't maybe think so himself. But he was an exegete, of course. He wanted to stick to the text. He wanted to use logic. He was very particular about using valid, logically valid arguments. So that can be interpreted as harsh by some people. He was very warm as a pastor. He was a very warm pastor. He did visit the sick during the plague. When the plague broke out, there was a danger for people's life. You know, you have to do the social distancing. You have to be in quarantine. Stay away from people. But Calvin didn't follow those guidelines the, the authorities in Geneva at the time told Calvin, you cannot go and visit the sick, the people who had the plague. But he did anyway. He risked himself. He risked his life. He could have been infected by the plague. He risked his life just to visit the people of God in their sickness, on their deathbed. That tells something. He also writes about the church in Geneva. The safety of that church was far too important in my mind for me to refuse to meet even death for its sake. But my timidity kept suggesting to me excuses of every color for refusing to put my shoulder again under so heavy a burden. However, the demand of duty and faith at length conquered and I went back to the flock from which I had been driven away. With how much grief, with how many tears, and in how great anxiety I went, God is my best witness. Maybe Calvin is viewed as a harsh and stern man because he was so shy. Sometimes introverts, he was probably introverted, sometimes introverts can be Viewed, you know how it is, Finns and Scandinavians. <laughs> we are very, not very talkative. We are a bit shy. And sometimes people from other countries interpret us as we are cold and harsh and mean and, and don't care about people. Calvin was a, a bit Finnish, maybe. <laughs> 
So he writes, Satan has undertaken all too often in many ways to corrupt the fabric of this church. The result has been that I, who am a peaceable and timid man, was compelled to break the force of the deadly attacks by interposing my own body as a shield. He was a man who gave his life. He was ready to give his life for the church. That is a warm, caring pastor deep inside. Another myth about Calvin that I have to bring up is the myth that says that Calvin killed Servetus. Calvin murdered Servetus. Calvin burned him at the stake. He killed him. He was a bloodthirsty tyrant. That's not true either. First of all, Servetus, he was burnt at the stake in Geneva. He was uh, Michael Servetus or Miguel Serveto. He was called, he was a renowned heretic, a very famous heretic in the world. All countries in Europe had basically condemned him to death as a heretic because, first of all, he denied original sin. That didn't go well with any reformer. He also denied the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, and taught other things. He almost taught pantheism, that God is everything. He almost taught a kind of Manichaeanism, that, that there are God and the devil are two equally strong forces that are at war with each other. So this man, Michael Servetus, was not a Christian, and he was a heretic. And again, at this time, there was no, not a, they didn't have a secular states, atheist states, where, you know, people can make up their laws as they go along. People felt a need to, we have to follow the Bible in our legislation. We have to even make certain doctrines illegal. It has to be illegal to teach heresies, to teach doctrines that are not sound or that are not in accordance to the Christian faith. That's why the Catholics burned uh, Protestants at the stake, of course, also, but that's why they burned heretics at the stake. Because the Bible says that if, if someone comes to you with uh, new gods and wants to seduce you into worship other gods than God, you have to put him to death. So we may agree or disagree with this, but that's how people viewed how to deal with heretics in that time. And of course, a discussion was starting to, to end the, these kinds of practices. And Calvin was actually one of those people who argued, he had written an, an essay on clemency from, from the Greek philosopher Seneca, who wrote a, 
about clemency, clementia, about the mercy. You have to show mercy and compassion. You can't just, you know, crucify people or burn them at the stake just because they don't obey. You don't have to show uh, severe judgment, punish people with death severely like that. So discussions were going on at the time, and Calvin was, seems to have been one of those that actually was arguing against this kind of death penalty for heretics. But heresy was viewed as a severe crime. It's sort of like murdering people eternally, not only murdering their body, but murdering them by keeping... You know, teaching them wrong doctrines that will bring them to hell. So we can understand that, yes, that is important. And people back then viewed this as a crime, like murder of the soul. Servetus seems also to have, have, like he wanted to be martyred. He, He was very aggressive in teaching his heresies. And some of his teachings were that he believed he believed in like it says in in the book of revelations twenty chapter twenty that those who were martyred martyred would rise again and reign for a thousand years with Christ, so he believed that since those who are martyred for Christ or for as he believed. The marchers would reign for a thousand years with Christ. Maybe it was desirable for him to become a martyr. So it's almost as if he was provoking the authorities to actually, he wanted to become a martyr so that he could reign for a thousand years in the millennium. And uh, against Calvin, he had written... uh, We could call it trolling. He trolled Calvin for many years. He wrote letters to Calvin asking him questions. He was not sincere in his questions, but Calvin, you know, answered his letters sincerely. But Servetus was just kept pulling his leg, stringing him along, trolling him along. And at the end, Calvin sort of just send, you know, read my book. He sends him his institutes. So you can read these books here. All my questions are answered. But instead, Servetus marks up the book and writes commentaries and mocks, mocking Calvin's doctrines and writes bad things in the book and sends it back in order to, to make Calvin annoyed or infuriated. So Calvin did have reason to be angry at Servetus, but yet Calvin writes this to Servetus. Listen carefully. If you believe Calvin wanted to kill Servetus, listen carefully now. Calvin writes this to Servetus. I neither hate you nor despise you, nor do I wish to persecute you, but I would be as hard as iron when... I behold you insulting sound doctrine, 
with so great audacity. Servetus was had been convicted of heresy in several places and sentenced to death in Vienne in France. He was prisoned in Vienne in France, finally. And on death row, he was to be executed, but he managed to escape. And he wrote then to Calvin if he could come to Geneva to seek refuge in Geneva. Geneva was a refugee town. And Calvin says, yes, you can come, you can seek refuge here, but know this, that my authority is of no avail here. Calvin was not part of the ruling authority, the, the state authority. He was an authority in the church. He was a preacher. He was a church leader, but he was not a civil leader in Geneva. So even if he himself seems to have wanted to protect Servetus, he, he, uh, he advises him to not come to Geneva because you will be as, as uh, bad off here because Calvin's authority was not of any avail. But Servetus came to Geneva anyway, and the authorities let him stay there under the condition that don't, don't speak bad about Calvin and don't preach your heresies. Then you can stay here. But of course, Servetus, wanting to be martyred, he went ahead to mock Calvin publicly and teach his teach against, speak against the Trinity publicly. So in Geneva, they had to deal with this, and they, they even wrote to other cantons in Swiss cantons. They wrote to Zurich, Basel, and Bern, and, and uh, se- several of those towns that they wrote to agreed that Servetus should be executed. They even asked uh, uh, Philip Melanchthon, Luther's own disciple. So listen now, all Lutherans who say that Calvin is evil for for even if he didn't do it. Philip Melanchthon, Luther's own theologian disciple, agreed that Servetus should be burned at the stake. He should be executed. So the council at Geneva, presided over by Ami Perrin, a libertine, burned Servetus at the stake and Calvin had nothing to say about it. He, he said at least... He appealed for leniency. He said, at least you don't have to torture him to death. You don't have to grill him in fire, low and slow to death. At least you could decapitate him quickly with a sword, chop his head off. But 
nothing could change the mind of, of the, the council, the authorities. Calvin writes himself in his own words about, about uh, heretics like Servidus and others. The only possible way to end their wicked plots was to destroy the men themselves by a shameful death, a spectacle which grieved me very much. It would grieve Calvin very much to see even those wicked heretics burned at the stake or put to death. And he goes on in his own words, although they deserved any possible punishment, I would rather have them alive. I would rather have them live safe and unharmed. And they could have done so if they had not been wholly impervious to wise counsel. So if we listen to Calvin's own words, it sounds like Calvin was... He didn't not only applied for leniency for Servidus and other heretics, he was actually didn't want to practice the death penalty against, against them, against Servidus. His view was that those issues in the church, the church shouldn't have that authority to execute people. If we are a church state here in Geneva, we shouldn't execute people. The main punishment that we are executing is when we excommunicate people, when we discipline them and put them out of the church, but we don't have to kill them. We can still let them live and hopefully, if God wills, he will grant them repentance. So Calvin didn't at least he didn't kill Servidus. He wasn't the one who killed Servidus or murdered him. It seems quite the opposite. Another myth is that Calvin, he sat in his ivory tower in the Alps in Switzerland and wrote down the five points of Calvinism. He, he invented tulip and that's all he did. He sat there and wrote down five points <laughs> and tried to invent them. That's not true. The five points of Calvinism, of course, are found in Calvin's teaching, in what he writes, in what he teaches, but those are extracted by the, the Council of Dort, many years after, years after Calvin had passed away. That is another, another story, but the tulip doesn't come from Calvin, the five points. Calvin never said that these are five important points in my teaching. He wrote his Institutes of the Christian Religion, that was his. Calvinism, that was his great work, his magnum opus. He, he edited it several times. He wrote it first in 1536, made a new edition in 1539. His final edition came in 1559. And that's his 
teaching, and his teachings came from the Bible. It was in the fact that he taught the Bible. That's why he taught what we can call the five points of Calvinism, because they came from the Bible. He was an exegete. Calvin was an exegete who looked at the text, who wanted to stick to the text, who wanted to apply his God-given logic and look at the text. We have the issue of the doctrine of the predestination. And people say that Calvin, he came with his predestination doctrine. That was his big thing. But the fact is that all, all the reformers taught the doctrine of predestination, even Luther. And the Lu- Lu- real Lutherans know that. True Lutherans know what Luther taught. They all taught mankind's sinful nature, that man is dead in sins and trespasses and cannot do anything to help themselves, to save themselves, to bring themselves to life. They are in complete need of God's grace and that because of this God must have acted first. God must have been the one who took the initiative in salvation of man. God must have been God who decided before the world began to save people. So all reformers taught this. They taught man's sinful nature. They taught grace alone. They taught predestination. The issue is rather the issue with what kind of predestination do you... How, how far does this predestination reach? Does it only reach to predestining who are going to be saved? Or does it also say something about those who are not going to be saved? Another misconception is that, that Luther taught single predestination and Calvin taught double predestination, which can be true, depends on how you mean, but mostly... People have this wrong view that, that uh, in Calvin's mind, God looks at two people and two neutral people, two you know, no, non-sinful people, and decides that this one is going to be a saint and go to heaven and be elected unto heaven while this other one, God will force them to become sinners so that they will go to hell and they are elected, they are predestined to hell. That is not Calvin's view either. That is also a misrepresentation of Calvin. While Luther believed single predestination, he believed, or Lutheranism, teaches that God elects, predestines people unto salvation. But the Lutherans say that Calvin went too far. Calvin was too logical because he drew 
a logical conclusion that since God elects some people, that must also mean that he does something with those who are not elected, unelects them. So Lutherans want to leave this up to being a mystery. We are not allowed to inquire into the fate of those who are not elect. That is in God's mind. And Calvin went too far. He was too logical. He drew a logical conclusion. But Calvin wasn't too logical. He wasn't more logical than the Bible itself. Calvin taught, he didn't teach this double predestination as we often described it, but he did teach election and reprobation. He taught that all men are sinful. All mankind is sinful. And God is not obliged. He doesn't have to save anyone. He is, God is justified in condemning everyone to hell. God is justified in leaving humanity the way they are and they deserve to go to hell by their own sin. Not by any fault in God. But then God chooses by his own mercy, by his own good pleasure to save some and not and passes over others. So, and Calvin got this from scripture that God elects some but leaves others in their sin. Yeah. I know we're running out of time. But Calvin got this from Romans 9. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The last thing to say before we end is that Calvin's doctrine, Calvin... Calvin's doctrine was about the glory of God that was central to his view. That was what what drove him. That was what made him draw his conclusions. That was his biblical conclusions. And that there I want to give the Wikipedia page one thumbs up because they write that Calvin's doctrine, central to Calvin's doctrine is God's glory and man is a vessel for God's glory. Whether one is saved, they are saved to the glory of God alone, to his grace alone because of his sovereign will alone and if someone even those who go to hell glorify God by being vessels of wrath fitted for destruction as Romans 9 says also they are vessels of wrath so that God will show his justice his judgment 
not not his his pleasure in bringing pain and torment but in being completely just and righteous in his judgment Romans 9:22 and 23 let me end with this what if god desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory calvin did not live to glorify himself god has 100% glory in salvation in calvinism calvin wasn't after the glory of man he would have let, rather live unknown and write about god let's end with a word of prayer lord we thank you we, we thank you for this man that you have risen up in history to teach your word to discover these great truths in your word and to emphasize this on all our minds that all things are for your glory alone to you belong all the glory forever amen